lots of announcements. I liked it better when we did video announcements. I was less out of breath, and so maybe someday we'll go back to that. But we've been in a series on Sunday mornings called The Journey, and uh, you've received or should have received books in the mail. Uh, There are three books that you have received so far. Those are available, even the large print edition. For those of you that thought the first one was too small, the large print edition is available in the lobby. There's a couple copies out there. Um, Books two and three are supposed to be daily devotionals. Not only that we do as a chance to kind of take these things and maybe let them marinate in our hearts a little bit, but they're actually for us to be able to use with new believers and walk with them through. Now, a new believer may not be able to get through one a week, um, but they may, they may need one or two pages a week. That's it. And so we want you to be familiar with the information in there. I think it's stuff that all of us should be aware of. And uh, that's why we made them available to you on Monday nights. So tomorrow night at 730, we meet downtown or on Zoom to discuss this last week. So we talked, or this last week was about uniting with believers. And so we're going to discuss that together in a small group setting tomorrow night at 730. And uh, the, the Zoom link should be in your email sometime tomorrow. So if you want to join that way, you're more than welcome to do that as well. Our fourth book is actually going to come out next week um, because I fear for Easter Sunday there may be a mass exodus. Um, A lot of times people travel over the Easter weekend, and so I'm going to start putting them out next week just to give us a couple weeks before we dive into that book um, to maybe save a little bit on the postage. But if you noticed in book two, there was a star, and I put an an image on the screen. Um, So what's going to happen is we're going to keep repeating these four topics. So these are basically the four core values, if you will, of these books or of this material. And so there's always this idea of loving God or connecting with God that's always going to be a part of that. There's going to be this part about uniting with the body of Christ or connecting with the body of Christ. There's always going to be a serving element. Um, They connect this to the world. Not that we don't serve one another in the body of Christ, but they use the word serve to talk about connecting with uh, the world or connecting with unbelievers. And then the word entrust is about connecting, what I would say connecting with the kingdom or how to make disciples. I don't know if you know this, but when Jesus left, for everyone who follows Jesus, he said to you and to me, go make disciples. That's what he said, go make disciples. So our role is not just to be sharing the gospel, it's to be taking people and making disciples, teaching them to follow Jesus, to do everything Jesus commanded. That was his final word in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And so that's an aspect of that, that we're actually going to start the devotion this week. We'll talk about in, or serving the world, and then we'll talk about entrusting the gospel. Um, but we're going to keep repeating these. They're going to be in a cycle. And Like the idea of four of them is good, but for our church, I want us to think of it in terms of tables, of course. Uh, And I want us to think of it in terms of three tables. And so I've already talked a lot today about the table of intimacy. Um, And so the table of intimacy is what we talked about last week, loving God, uh, being connected with him. Then I believe there is uh, this, this place of intimacy with him is where our identity is formed. We talked last week about the danger of gaining our identity from serving or from ministry. Um, Our identity has to come from him. And out of our connection with him, that's where the ministry comes from. And sometimes we get that backwards. We, We serve, but we get to a place of burnout and frustration because it's not coming from a place of intimacy. It's coming from a place of duty and obligation. 
If you remember the story of the two sons, the one son that ran off and squandered everything and the one son that stayed at home, the one son that stayed at home said, you never gave me anything. I've served all these years for you. And the father basically says, I prepared a table every day for you to eat. You could have done it any time. And a lot of people go to church every Sunday. They're very active in church. They serve God. They're in a ministry out in the community and they're doing great things for Jesus. They just don't know how to sit and be intimate with him. And that danger is what we talked about last week. So the table of intimacy is very important. Then I believe what we're going to talk about today is what I would call the table of brotherhood in Christ Jesus. That's this idea of uniting with other believers, and we're going to dig into that in a little bit. And then next week, we're going to talk about what I've called the table of brotherhood, Amajo Dei. Amajo Dei is this concept that we are all, as human beings, created in the image of God. And as people here at Restoration Church, we believe that you and I, we should live life at a table with people made in the image of God who are not believers. That doesn't necessarily mean that we have to have a meal with them. It means we have to live our lives in such a way that they're welcome in our lives. I believe Jesus sat at all three of these tables. And I believe he sat at them regularly. And I believe we have to know which one we're sitting at because the mission at each one of those is a little bit different. And if we get them confused, we're going to run into trouble. So this morning, we started with Psalm 23.5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What table is that? Is it the table of intimacy? Sure. I mean, how many of us know in the presence of our enemies, we need him? We need to sit at the table of intimacy and know that our identity is not shaped by what our enemies are saying about us. Our identity is shaped by who he, he says we are. Or is it the table of brotherhood in Christ Jesus? Yeah, I think that table's there too because there's power and unity. And sometimes I need my brothers and sisters in Christ in the presence of my enemies. Or is it actually a table where we're supposed to sit with our enemies? That's actually the call of the kingdom. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. Yeah, we don't really like that table as much. There's this funny story in the Old Testament where the prophet Elisha is being, he's surrounded by all of these armies. There's chariots all around him, and they're there to, like, kill him because they know he is telling the king of Israel all of their secrets, and they're going to kill him. And the servant goes out, and the servant panics, and he's like, Elisha, we're going to die with all these chariots. Ah!" And Elisha calmly says, Lord, open his eyes to see. And all of a sudden, the servant can see these chariots of fire all around them. And then Elisha prays, and God strikes the entire army with blindness. And he leads that army straight into the capital city of Israel, Samaria. And in 2 Kings chapter 6, this is what happens. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and there they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those who you have captured with your own sword or bow? Yes. (laughs) Set food and water before them so they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them, and after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away, and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. They didn't have to destroy them with military might. 
It was at the table of brotherhood, Imago Dei, that God actually used that moment to keep them from invading the nation of Israel. Not only do we have that example in the Old Testament, I think we've got it all throughout the New Testament as well. And so these are the tables that I believe at Restoration Church that we're going to continue to talk about as we go through this series. So we may not talk about the same terminology when they talk about love and and unite and serve and entrust. We may use those terms, but they're kind of interchangeable. And so um, I want to read, before I dig into this idea of uniting with believers, today we're going to talk about the table of brotherhood in Christ, uniting with other believers. Um, I want to continue reading through the book of Ephesians. Remember, we started, I read a chunk of Ephesians 1 last week and Ephesians uh, part of one and two. And then last week at our annual meeting, I read parts of two and three. And today I'm just going to do a a short section from chapter four. Uh, It's not on the screen. And so if you want to read along in your Bible, you can. Uh, Sorry, I didn't give you more time to pull it up. But Ephesians chapter four, verses one through 16 is what we're going to read today. And this is the words of Paul, just picking up where we left off. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you, to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you've been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. That's kind of what we're saying, isn't it? However, he has given each of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That is why the scriptures say, when he, Christ, ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice that it says he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. And the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. And all of us would say, amen, that's the word of the Lord. I want you to notice in that passage that unity doesn't get created by us. Unity gets created supernaturally by the Spirit, but we are commanded to do everything we can to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We either maintain the unity of the Spirit by how we act, or we destroy it by how we act. We sometimes destroy it by how we don't act, by our apathy or by our complacency. 
In the book of James, James tells us if we know the right thing to do, but we don't do it, for us, it's a sin. Now, as we talk about this idea of church and uniting with the church, I want you to think about this. This was clear in this passage, and it's going to be clear in some other ones we look at. Think about this. The church is the body of Christ. You know, like Pastor Tom, you paused way too long. That's not really that earth-shattering. It is, actually. We just don't think about it. He is the head. Believers are the body. We cannot be in relationship with the head and not feel what he feels for the body. It's not about disciplining ourselves to feel what other people are feeling. It's about connecting to the head at the table of intimacy. Think about your body. If you have a pain in your foot, how do you know you have a pain in your foot? Because your foot is connected to your head. I mean, I know it's a long way off, but it is. And if something happens to break that connection to the head, you will not feel pain in your foot. The problem is sometimes we try so hard to connect to the body, and yet we're not connected to the head too. The connection to the head is what connects us to one another. We never walk away from the table of intimacy. This idea of body is all through the New Testament. If you've read your Bible at all, you're familiar with it. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 Just as a body, a physical body, though one has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. We were all baptized by one spirit. There's a whole lot of one happening. Do you hear in it? So as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body's not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. If the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? Think of how often we get frustrated that parts that are not the ear aren't hearing what we are as an ear. And how much of our frustration that everyone isn't seeing it the way we're seeing it is the fact that they're a different part. And maybe if we sat at the table of brotherhood and talked about how we're seeing it, there'd be a lot less frustration. No, just a thought. But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just where he's wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but there's one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. This is very un-American because all I need is Jesus in the American church. I don't need that person. I don't need that person. And yet the scripture says you need every part. On the contrary, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be the weaker are indispensable. I don't need that part. And Christ would say, uh, you absolutely need that part. The parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. 
But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so there should be no division in the body, but its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. In Romans chapter 12, the apostle Paul says something very similar. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. In other words, that I don't need the other parts, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though many form one body, and each member belongs to all. This isn't my words. These are Paul. To the others, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, serve. If it's teaching, teach. If it's encourage, give encouragement. If it's giving, give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now, there are some of us that are more gifted in some of these things, but all of us are called to serve, and all of us are called to give, and all of us are called to do some of these things. But those who are really just gifted in it are the ones that should be helping the other parts grow in those things. This is why we need each other in the body of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. In context, Peter says all of these same things. But in verse 10, he says, Each of you should use whatever gift you receive to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. In the book of Matthew, Jesus himself said, This should not be with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There is a call in the New Testament for us to be connected with the body of Christ, other believers, in order to grow and to serve, to grow in our ability to serve. But we have to maintain connection to the head at the table of intimacy if we are going to be able to serve well at the table of brotherhood in Christ. If we're going to be able to unite with other believers too often We get frustrated because we're looking for validation from other people in the body of Christ when our validation should be coming from him And I get tired and I get worn out I'm not saying we there is a call in the body of Christ to encourage one another Absolutely, and we ought to get better at that But if you rely on other people being your strength and encouragement, you're not going to last. You have got to learn to sit at the table of intimacy. Because other people will do this. They will fail and they will let you down. And you will walk away from them in self-righteous indignation because you were not sitting at the table of intimacy. Now, yeah, there is a time to walk away, but not as often as we do. Not as often as we do. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus is talking to his disciples. Look at verse 1 of Luke 17. It is impossible that no offenses should come. It is impossible. He te- In fact, the disciples' response to that is, increase our faith. <laughs> Then he tells them a story. 
And he says, after you've done everything you were told to do, sit at the table and realize you've, all you've done is you're, we're unworthy servants. We've just done our duty. In other words, it's getting the identity we need from our master and not from our fellow servants. And recognizing that the table of intimacy is our reward. Why do you think in Revelation there's a picture of us casting our crowns before the feet of Jesus? Because intimacy is our reward. The table of intimacy is all I need, but the more I sit at the table of intimacy, the more I understand I've got to be connected to the body and I've got to serve the world. It's kind of circular. But the church today, I promise you, is much different than the church in this book. How many times did we hear the word one? And as you look at the church world across our nation, as you look at it across the world, are we one? No, we're not. There's all kinds of problems and there's all kinds of issues. But in the scripture, there was, in each city, there was an expression of the church. It was local. And within each city, there were separate house churches. But in essence, they were all connected. There weren't Baptist and Lutheran and Assembly of God and Pentecostal and non-Pentecostal and Evangelical and, and Mainline. There weren't all of these things. There was one church. In fact, there was one holy Catholic church. <laughs> that word just means universal, by the way. Okay, it doesn't mean Catholicism like we think of it today. There was one universal church. That's why the Apostles' Creed reads, there is one Catholic church in its oldest form. One universal church. And they were under the headship of the apostles. Not just the 12 apostles, other people were appointed apostles. And then there were leadership structures that were appointed in cities and in house churches. There were apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers and other elders and deacons. And all of these people were working together to build up the body of Christ, to bring it to a place of maturity and fullness and completeness and helping each part do its work so that the other parts would grow and build themselves up in love. But now, Pastor Tom, we have all of these different denominations, and what are we supposed to do? And ultimately, all of these denominations have come. If you've studied church history at all, you know that what happens is there's a disagreement over Scripture and how to interpret that Scripture, and different denominations form, and some of them are probably justified, and some of them are probably a result of human pride and selfishness. That's just the reality. So how do we interpret these passages in our culture when we're not necessarily one? Well, at Restoration Church, we still believe that the New Testament calls us to be connected to a local expression of the body of Christ. And we value connectedness in the body of Christ. Are we good at it? Good? Sure. Can we be better? Absolutely. All the time. We as Restoration Church, the people in this room are Restoration Church, by the way, we are to connect. This is our, this is our role. But here at Restoration Church, we also value partnership beyond ourselves. And one way that we value partnership beyond ourselves is our commitment to work with the people in the Assemblies of God. That's our denomination. That's our fellowship. We think it's valuable because we can do ministry together with other partners in the Assemblies of God more than we could ever do by ourselves. We meet our global partners all the time. They go around the world and do ministry. We also believe there's accountability, that there's submission that comes from leadership. There's safety. There's protection. In the Assemblies of God, we're at what we call a voluntary cooperative fellowship. And so what we do is we believe that in each city, each culture, every church is, is free to be like who they are to reach their city, to walk within an expression that fits their community. 
However, there are doctrines and behaviors that unite us. There's a protection. There's a covering. So we believe that every believer should be a part of a church. We would love all of you to be connected to Restoration Church. We'd love everybody to be connected to Restoration Church. So from time to time, I tell you who we are because you should prayerfully consider where you should be. And from from the time I took over as pastor 23 years ago, I have said this often, and it makes people nervous. People actually have come to my office on Mondays to tell me I shouldn't say this. If you can't be connected here, if you can't be happy and growing here, find somewhere else where you can. Because if you're not happy here, you will make other people unhappy here, and you will not be happy here. I think you could get happy here if the Lord leads you here. But if he doesn't lead you here, you could go somewhere else and be happy in him. And they're always like, Pastor Tom, we want everyone to come here. If you don't feel called here, if you don't sit at the table of intimacy and know that God has brought you here and that your job is to work together with us to build the kingdom of God, you will cause problems here and you will not grow and flourish here. It's it's just the truth. It's the reality. And so I want you all here. Let's be clear. But I want you to know that you're here. I want you to know that this is where God has put you. I believe in the New Testament, they're pretty clear that if there's leadership in a body and they're in sin and they're unrepentant, that you should get out of that body. I believe that Paul and Barnabas show us that at times there's a disagreement that's so strong that you sometimes part ways. But you notice that Paul and Barnabas and John Mark stay connected at the end. The way we do it in the American church, when we just get upset or frustrated and leave, we disconnect or we get angry. I was right. I was wrong. That's not the body of Christ. In day six of your devotion, if you read it this week, there were two questions that that were offered in day six. One, do you know your giftings? And number two, do you believe you're serving the body of Christ to your fullest potential? Those are two questions that you have to ask. Do you know your giftings, and do you believe you're serving the body of Christ to its fullest potential? Because at Restoration Church, I think we're not only just a part of a body here. I love when Christy prayed for, like, the body out there. Because we are, we have a calling, we believe, from God to be a part. It's, I believe, what we would call an apostolic calling, where we actually care about the body of Christ universally in our city. I try to celebrate, I try to love, I try to attend what other people are doing. I believe there's a calling on our life that needs to happen because every individual part in our local body is necessary. It says it in the book. What if every church denomination in our city is necessary? And what if we came together in such a way that even though we met in different buildings and had some different beliefs, there was a oneness that hosted the presence of God in our city. That's my heart. That is, I don't know why that's my heart. He must have put it there. It's always been my heart. From the day that I took this place, I I meet every month with the ministers from every church across the city that will come for our ministers association meeting, and I celebrate them. I celebrate what God is doing in them. I mean, sometimes they say things that make me a little uncomfortable, but I I love them. And some of my closest confidants have come from some denominations that if I told you their name, you'd be like, are they even saved? 
Yeah, I believe they were. I believe there's a calling on our lives to celebrate the different graces of other churches. Yes, we meet the needs of our local body, but part of our our role in this community is bringing others together. I believe that. It's not a an ecumenical movement that we ignore sin, but it's a place where we stay at the table and we grow with the body of Christ. We want the presence of God. And if you study revival movements from the past, the revival movements from the past that went beyond just one church, that affected entire regions, were more churches involved. And that's what we're trying to see happen. What does this look like for us to be this type of, of, of congregation or this type of body? We get our reward from a place of intimacy, not what everybody thinks of us. In other words, when we think that God is asking us to do something, it doesn't mean that every church should do what we do. In fact, every church that looks at somebody else and says, oh, look how successful they're being at that. I'm going to copy that in our church. And then they're like, I don't know why it didn't work here. Because that's not you. Who has God called you to be? And you know what? You don't have to have a thriving Wednesday night kids program. There's 16 Awana groups you can go to in this community. And I would send my kids to any one of them. Well, Pastor Tom, what if those people start going to church there? Praise God. They won't go to hell. I mean, I don't want you to go there. But you understand, we don't have to reinvent the wheel if we could learn to just partner with other churches sometimes. Can we help other churches that are struggling? What if we took an offering for a church that was behind on their budget? What if I took money from our help fund and blessed another church that needed a project? Because guess what? We do it. What if we sold our building to another church that could flourish in it. Guess what? We do stuff like that. Because we can meet here. Oh, Pastor Tom, there's so many challenges when we rent. There's challenges to owning too. Oh, but it's so much work on Sunday morning. It's so much work the other six days when you own. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm just telling you there's challenges when you're a body of Christ. And for now, we are where we are for a strategic moment, and we are working to bring revival to our city. We don't neglect the needs of our local body, but as a body, we minister to others. I couldn't write checks to other churches if you didn't give to the help fund. You are the reason we can bless them. We can celebrate other churches who get a variance that we don't even have. That's who we are. I'm, and it's not fun. It's not fun to be this. Remember that when I told you that the Lord said, hey, make yourself of no reputation? This is what it's about. It's about not getting credit. It's, not, it's about, you know, it's, it's about the kingdom. That's really what it's about. It's about being willing to plant a church in Redfield, South Dakota, that's called Freedom Church, that a huge chunk of what happened there was Restoration Church. And our name's not on that thing but our heart's in it. I want you to connect to a local body and I want you to flourish. I want to give you one more practical thing that I think would not only help you flourish in a body of Christ, but it'll help you flourish in marriage. It'll help you flourish at work. It's going to help you flourish everywhere you go. 
In Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, did I ever put the tables up there? I'll throw those up there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Look at this. It's a circle, or at least the best circle I could make. We never leave the tables. Table of intimacy, table of brotherhood. It's just, it's like a pattern. It's like a cycle. Always coming back. Okay, now we're Ephesians chapter 4. I took so long to create it, I had to show it to you. It's coming back next week, don't worry. So Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Remember this? We just read this. I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Can I tell you this? Anytime that you are in a relationship with other people, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a home, parents, siblings, um, work, friendships, church, it's impossible for offenses not to come. And sometimes you, you have to overlook an offense. But you can't ignore it. Sometimes people say, oh, I've let that go. And yet they talk about it all the time to other people. And they, like, don't even talk to that person anymore. Or they've started to isolate from that person. If you're not actually working through it, you're, you haven't overlooked it, and you need to go to step two. And step two is working or talking through it with the other person. You have to learn to do this. We have to learn that God hates complaining and grumbling. Not just in church, at work, in our nation, everywhere. Trust me, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is writing about warnings from the Old Testament for New Testament believers to pay attention to. In chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, we should not test Christ as some of them did, and they were killed by snakes. We should not grumble as some of them did, and they were killed by the destroying angel. If you go back to Numbers 21, you will find that when they were bitten by snakes, they had complained to Moses that he brought them into this infernal desert to die, and there's no food or water. Enter snakes. And they bit the people and killed them. Okay, that doesn't sound like a, uh, uh, does the punishment fit the crime? I don't know. The grumbling is in Numbers chapter 14. You can go back and you can read the story. The grumblers were the ones that came back from the promised land and led all of the people to grumble and say, we can't go in. We can't do it. It's not going to happen. It's the one that stands up at the business meeting every time and says, how's that going to work? No, I'm just, I'm absolutely kidding. Please don't. I shouldn't have even said that. I repent. But here, it doesn't seem like it's a big deal to complain and grumble unless we go to Philippians chapter 2, do everything without grumbling or complaining so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. It's not about God striking us dead. Our grumbling and complaining are destroying the work that God wants to do. Does that mean we should never voice a complaint, never grumble? No, absolutely, we should voice a complaint. Acts chapter 6. Glad you asked. In those days, when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily food distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude. Now, can I tell you something? The twelve heard the complaint. The apostles, the heads of the church, heard the complaint. So this wasn't just a group of people grumbling in a corner somewhere about their spouse or about their boss, or they took the complaint where it could be heard and where something could be done. That has to happen. 
Then the twelve summoned the multitude of disciples and said it's not desirable that we should leave the work of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. That's significant to me because as you read the book of Acts, all the way through from Acts 1 through Acts 6, the Lord added daily to their number, those being saved. The Lord added daily to their number. The Lord added, the Lord added, the Lord added, and all of a sudden we come here, and what's the word? Multiplied. Huh. When the church was faced with something that could have led to subtraction, look how they handled it. And I believe, I I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was a stronghold that got broke. I don't know if a principality lost power because of the way they handled this moment. I don't know if it was just the leadership structure that was put up that was able to handle more. But something happened in this moment that went from addition to multiplication. Because here's the deceptions. The deceptions is, I don't want to bring this up to my spouse, or I don't want to bring this up to my boss, or I don't want to bring this up to the pastor, because I don't want to cause problems. I don't want to cause problems. (laughs) Can I tell you, by not bringing it up, you're causing problems. In your marriage, in your workplace, because you think it's not affecting you, but it's affecting you. It's isolating you from your boss. It's, it's skewing the lens of your spouse. Your spouse no, can, no longer can do anything right. All you see are the negative. This is what's ruining your relationship with your parents or your kids. You just won't sit down and have a rational conversation. And I know it's easy to say it's always the other person's fault. That's another deception. Well, I don't want to hurt their feelings. Then don't. Then find a way to say it kindly. Like, you don't have to be mean. Like, you're seeing it from a different perspective. So you're going to have a conversation that says, hey, here's what I'm seeing. Tell me, tell me what you're seeing. Like, when this happens, this hurts. And I know you love me. I know you don't want to hurt me. So help me understand, like, what's going on here? Oh, that's a good way to have that conversation. But Pastor Tom, that doesn't work in the real world. It does if you let the emotion come down and then sit down and talk about it rationally. It really does. That's the only way to have these problems. And the idea that, well, I'll just keep it to myself and the 15 other people you tell, like we never keep it to ourselves. Well, I only told my spouse, or I only told, but can I tell you something? I don't believe demonic forces can read our minds. I don't believe there's anything in this book that says spiritual forces that I believe are at work in our world can read our minds, but they can hear. And the moment you give them ammunition out loud, they'll use it. They'll use it to skew your view of that person, of other people. They'll, they'll use it as ammunition. It's a stronghold then, and it needs to be broken. Does that mean we should never complain to anyone? No. If you want to go to a trusted friend or to a counselor or to a pastor or to someone and say, hey, I need your help. I need to have this conversation. I don't know how to have it. How do we have it? Because that's different than going to your girlfriend or your boyfriend and just rattling off all of your complaints about your spouse, isn't it? I'm going to work towards something, not just try to validate myself. So here's, a, here's something. We're going to end with some questions today. I'm going to give you 10 questions. Get your phones ready. Take a picture. You're probably not going to be able to write them down because there's 10 of them. 
and I want you to focus on them. If I'll even put them up on Facebook later. I'll screenshot them and put them up there. But the first five are going to deal with our relationships, and the second five are going to deal with our church. Okay? So here's the first five. When you, are, when you need to share something about someone else in a relationship, am I sharing this to move toward a solution for all? Am I sharing this to move toward a solution for all? And number two, am I in danger of putting an offense on someone else? Because sometimes if I share something with someone and they think that other person is like Jesus and I start sharing with them my complaint, that can start skewing their vision of that other person. Now they're going to see that person through the lens of my problem not what's really there. You understand that? So be careful when you talk about people around your kids because you're skewing your kids' view of their coach, of their teacher, and you don't need to do that. Am I putting a burden on someone? Number three, will this skew their lens or filter? Am I putting a burden on someone that they shouldn't be carrying? I don't think that question's up there. But sometimes we're putting things on people that they can't carry. If someone is overloaded with their own life, I don't need to dump my stuff in their trunk. Let them deal with that, and I need to go somewhere else to find my help. Am I empowering spiritual forces in what I'm sharing? And then the last one, am I working for the restoration of another or the validation of myself. When I wrote those questions this week, I thought back to conversations that I have had this week and thought, repentance time. Wow, how easy it is to justify things that come out of our mouths. And you know what? We don't need to sit here today and feel guilty. We can humbly repent out loud so spiritual forces hear it, and we can disarm them. Any ammunition that we've given them in the name of Jesus can be taken away. Can I tell you, you don't need to sit in shame and guilt. You just need to humbly repent. So five more questions to consider. As if that wasn't enough. That'll fix all your relationships, by the way. At least as much as it depends on you. Live at peace with all people as much as it depends on you. Does scripture call for connection with the body of Christ? Wrestle with that. Does the scripture call for connection with a local body of Christ? Has God called you to connect to this body? And if you're here today and you're like, I don't know, or or no, could you get to the table of intimacy and get that figured out? For your sake and for our sake, get that figured out. Get that to be a yes, or then come tell me that it's a no. And you know what I'll do? I'll bless you to go. Over the years, I've had people say, Pastor Tom, I feel like God's calling me to go to this other church. And every single time I say, go. That's a great pastor. Do you need me to introduce you? Now, if it's one that I'm thinking is a little sketchy, I'll tell you that. That doesn't happen very often. But get that to be a yes. Number three, are you aware of your giftings? Number four, are you serving the body to your fullest potential? That's going to be different at different seasons. If you're a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad with lots of little kids, fullest potential might look different than someone that's got a little bit more time on their hands. I get it. 
So don't say, are you doing as much as someone else? Are you serving to your fullest potential? And then question number five, can I help? Do you and I need to have a conversation? Can I help you process any of these questions? And here's, here's the deception. Pastor Tom, you're so busy. You're right, I, I am busy. I don't recall anyone ever saying, Pastor Tom, could I come talk to you? And I said, oh, I'm just too busy. Find someone else. May not happen the day you'll want it, but it'll happen. All right, let's see. When, when's it work for you? Yeah, I'm busy. You're busy. We're all busy. But if you need to talk, call or text, and I'll help you work through any of these questions. I don't have all the answers. I don't have it all worked out in my life. I promise you the first five, Christy called me out today over there. I promise you those first five hit like a ton of bricks. I'm like, ooh, yeah. I hate, hate when I think that I've given ammunition to anyone, any spiritual force. Instant repentance. God, take it back. Take it back. I repent. And I think he does. So let me pray for you. So Heavenly Father, wow, that's quite a load. Lord, you are are the only one that can enable, enable us to carry this. And I pray today for each of these questions this week as you help us to ponder them in every relationship we have. God, in our relationships with parents or siblings, coworkers, spouse, bosses, teachers, friends, pastors, leaders, presidents, mayors, forgive us. Forgive us for every idle word that has ever come from our mouths. Any ammunition that we've given to the enemy, any way we've skewed someone else's view of another, God, that has no place in our lives and we don't want it. We don't want it there. So Holy Spirit, bring a fresh layer of conviction to our hearts and help us to choose our words carefully. I pray that you'd help us as a body to connect to one another in ways we never have before. Father, forgive us for the things that we have done or the things that have gone undone that are are actually breaking apart the unity of the body that you are bringing. And help us to make those changes. Holy Spirit, speak plainly and clearly to each of us this week at how we should walk in obedience to this message today, to these devotions that we read this week. How do we put them into practice? And help us to sit not only at that table of intimacy, but at the table of brotherhood in Christ Jesus. Holy Spirit, help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I said, we're going to keep repeating these themes over the next several months because our next book isn't going to give you new themes. It's just going to redo the old ones. We're going to keep talking about these topics over and over and how they live out in our lives. That's the journey that we're on. And so I want to encourage you, um, if you haven't picked up the books, they're available in the back. You can use them at whatever pace or speed works for you. Don't forget House of Prayer tonight, five o'clock. And then our group tomorrow night, our small group, excuse me, at 730 at the downtown office as well. Thanks for being here today. Offering baskets are in the t- on the tables as well. All the information about our church. God bless you as you go.